0: I'll read the paragraph and pray, and then we'll begin to look at some texts as we move through it. Paragraph 2 of chapter 16. These good works, done in obedience to God's commandments, are the fruits and evidences of a true and lively faith, and by them believers manifest their thankfulness, strengthen their assurance, edify their brethren, adorn the profession of the gospel, stop the mouths of the adversaries, and glorify God, whose workmanship they are, created in Christ Jesus thereunto, that having their fruit unto holiness, they may have the end, eternal life. Let's pray. Lord, bless our time. Father, we are thankful for the word that we've heard We can see your kindness, your tenderness toward us, your creatures, your willingness to guide us and give us instructions that are helpful, that are uh, the most favorable to life and safety and flourishing, uh, the most uh, just laws that have ever been revealed. Lord, forgive us when we dissent from your laws, when we think that Perhaps our ways might be better than yours. We pray as we look at our confession now and as we look at the scriptures, you'd help us to see again your kindness to us, that we would be stirred to live a life that is like the life of our Lord. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So we looked last week, or began last week, considering what I would call the controversy over good works. Uh, regarding justification and sanctification. And throughout history, this has been a fairly well-known controversy. When it comes to justification, our good works are not brought into the equation. If we are declared righteous, it is on account of the merit, the good works of Christ alone, having been imputed to the believer at the moment of true and saving faith. Not our works. And at no time... From that point into eternity will our standing with God be based on our good works. That is settled when the works of Christ are imputed to us. But when it comes to our sanctification, and both of these ideas in Scripture are... uh, described using the terminology of salvation. And this is why we have to be careful with using broad language like that. But when it comes to our sanctification, our works are very significant. And I mentioned three texts, three references that I didn't read. I want to read them now just to sort of emphasize the importance of our good works. The first one was Titus two eleven and 12, which says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Now what we can deduce from that text is where there is no renunciation of ungodliness, where there is no renunciation of worldly passions, where you find a person who has no self-control, no uprightness, no godliness in their life, and all of that is describing their works, If you find a person like this, that is a person who has no grace. And that person is not allowed to pretend that they do have grace and that grace is somehow the covering for all of this lack or their failures because we see in this text that grace is actually the power of God to produce these things, not the covering. And the more I, I think about this, this might be one of those ideas that we need to start challenging. Because we live in a society that is, people have enough of of biblical language to use the word grace. We've all heard them say, I'm not under law, I'm under grace, I'm just thankful for the grace of God. I think this is an idea that it might be helpful to begin to challenge. When somebody says grace, ask them, what do you mean by that? Define that term. They're going to say, unmerited favor, because they read it in a... A, a lexicon or a, a Strong's Concordance, or they're going to say, uh, getting something you don't deserve. Well, ask them to go to the Scriptures. Where in the Scriptures does the Holy Spirit define His terminology? And, and what we see here, ironically, is that grace, rather than being a blanket to cover up sin, grace, notice in this in this text, you don't have to have it open, but grace has appeared, grace brings salvation, grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, grace trains us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Grace is, is action, it's power from God. And where there is not these things, someone, if you were to say, well... I'm not certain that you're a Christian. And they would say, well, why? And you could say, well, it doesn't look like your life is characterized by, by these things. That They might say, well, yeah, but that's why there's grace. No. If there is grace, then you would be living this way. Grace produces this in a person. When there is not these things, there is no grace. John 14, 15, Jesus said, If you love Me, you will keep My commandments. So where you find a person who is not busy keeping the commandments of Christ, you can say they have no love for Jesus. Regardless of what they might say, they're speaking contrary to the Lord if they say any different than this. And then the other one was Hebrews 12, 14, which we've read many times. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. If you, if you find a person, if you are that person that is not striving after holiness... You have no hope of heaven. This is clear from the Scriptures. Godliness and holiness of life is a key component in the Christian life. Not for our justification, but for our sanctification. Now somebody might then object and say, Then why are they important? What is the purpose and, and when somebody asks that, you really begin to, to get behind their thinking because to an unregenerate person, the only reason that you would live a moral life or begin to obey commands is because you believe that that is earning you something with God. For them, the idea that we would obey the commandments of Christ, strive for holiness, renounce ungodliness, live self-controlled and godly lives, and yet we would say, we do all these things... But not because we want to earn our standing with God. There are other reasons. To them, that, that boggles the mind. The, the only, it seems like, the only system that works in the mind of an unregenerate person is either I earn my standing with God or I do as I please and God just doesn't have any standards Himself. But they might ask, then what purpose do our works serve. And this next paragraph gives us seven reasons why good works are important. And so I'm just going to walk through it just like that. It's sort of like the passage this morning. It's almost just like a list, and I'm just going to walk straight through it. It says, these good works done in obedience to God's commands, that reiterates what we saw last week, that good works are such things as found in God's Word, not invented in the minds of men. Good works our number one. What I've, have I've changed the titles, even though the words are here. The first thing that good works do for us is they are a proof of true faith. These good works are fruits and evidences of a true and lively faith. Now there is implied in this statement the reality that there are many false imitations of faith we're not striving after those what we want to have is a is the true thing the real thing that when the bible talks about faith we want to have that real thing but if you've been a christian for very long at all and if you spend very much time examining yourself very often you might wonder is what's happening in me that is it the same thing you know the disciples asked jesus increase our faith Sometimes we think that way. We recognize that our faith is, is weak. It's not what it ought to be. We, we wrestle with, is what's happening in my mind and heart really what the Lord describes? And so how can we measure it? How can we measure our faith? It's, there's, there's not a, a thermometer. There's not a, a button we can push that sort of lights up and shows us you know, you got three bars of faith left. How do we measure it? Well... The confession here is affirming what the Scriptures teach, that the works that we perform in obedience to God are a good measure of whether or not we have the real kind of faith. Whether or not our faith is the real deal. It uses the phrase fruits and evidences produced by faith and therefore evidences that the faith is there. And the key word again is is a lively faith, a living faith, the real thing. Now, how do we determine if something is alive? If you planted a garden, you want to know if your plants are alive, what are you looking for? You're looking for growth. You're looking for movement. You're looking for new sprouts. You're looking for it was this tall, now it's this tall. If there's no movement, no growth, no new sprouts, it's beginning to wilt, you say, This plant is not living. It's the same with our faith. Our faith evidences itself to be alive by producing fruit. We see this in James chapter 2, verse, beginning at verse 18. And you can turn to these. We have time tonight to turn to these. James 2, beginning in verse 18. And this is going to be the typical text that people would use who did not believe in justification by faith alone. They'll come here. We have to keep our minds on what James is trying to say. Beginning at verse 18, he says, But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Okay, now James responds to that. Show me your faith apart from your works. Okay, now just imagine that you're this person in conversation with James, and James says, Show me your faith apart from your works. Don't move. Don't take a step. Don't move your arms, hands in your pockets. Don't move. Show me your faith. You can't do it. It's not possible. He says, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. I will begin to act to show you that I believe what God has revealed in His Word. He says, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar, you see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. So the idea here is how do we know that Abraham believed God? We, we could go back prior to the sacrifice of Isaac when, when the Word says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. How do we know that? Because he left. He started walking. He, he displayed it. And the idea of of justified here in this text, Abraham, our father, was justified by works, that doesn't mean declared righteous in the court of God. It means that his faith was vindicated, shown to be a real faith when he began to act. And here the, the illustration is when he offered up his son Isaac. How do we know that Abraham still believed God after all of these years? He was going to take his son and actually offer him as an offering. He was willing to obey God. So the Scriptures are clear that true saving faith will be displayed in how somebody lives. So here's the question. Are you producing good works in obedience to the commands of God? We examine ourselves. If you are, are these works the true overflow of your heart and not something that you're just manufacturing? From, from within you, you can say, in all honesty, I delight to obey God and therefore I'm doing these things because I've found in His Word that this is what He's commanded me to do. If you can say yes to these things, then it is likely that your faith is a true, lively faith. The opposite of that would be that perhaps you are obeying some of the commands of God because you know that's what's expected because you know that our society sort of requires some sort of morality, but in reality, you don't, you don't really want to do what God has commanded. If that's the case, then your good works are not evidences of a lively faith. They're evidences of a lively hypocrisy, that you're just doing these things to keep up faith before people. But if you can say, I'm obedient to God's commands because I love to obey God, then you can be somewhat confident that your faith is living. You have the real thing. You have a lively faith. So our good works give proof of a living faith. Secondly, our, our good works display our gratitude. It says, By them believers manifest their thankfulness. Believers, again those with a true and lively faith, show our gratitude to God for many things. The many blessings that He gives. And here the confession references Psalm 116, which we just sung. Psalm 116, 12 to 14. It's very interesting when you think through the mind of the author here. Beginning at verse 12, this is what we sung. What shall I render to the Lord for all His benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all His people. Now, now, think about this. The psalmist recognizes, we recognize the many benefits of the Lord, the many blessings that He gives. The psalmist has recognized that. We know, and he knows, God doesn't require us to pay for the things He's, He's done. He doesn't give us benefits and say, just get back to me whenever you can. I'm not in a big rush, but here's the receipt. He doesn't expect that. He doesn't demand that. But the psalmist here recognizes that it would be good, it's actually most natural, to render something to the Lord out of gratitude. And so he, he begins to inquire. He's searching. He's thinking, what, what could I do? What could I at this point render to the Lord for all of the benefits that He has given to me? And then he begins to describe, without much elaboration, various acts of public worship that were in obedience to the commands of God. The cup of salvation, calling upon the name of the Lord, paying vows in the presence of the people and the assembly. These are acts of public worship. If you want to know, what are some good works commanded in God's Word? Look at the various things commanded in, in public worship. These are things that God tells us to do. So how can we... Manifest our thankfulness to God. Do good works. Specifically here, worship Him in the way that He has prescribed. We show our gratitude by obeying Him in worship. Now the opposite of this would be to go to the second commandment. To violate that commandment. To worship Him in ways that He has not commanded. Which in that commandment the Lord says, this is what people do who hate me. Don't make images because God's going to visit that and repay that on those who hate me. Why would people worship God according to their own devices and their own imaginations in ways that He has not prescribed? Because they hate the real God. They hate His commandments. So you don't express gratitude by doing something He hasn't commanded. You express gratitude by doing what He has commanded. So when we obey God, God, these, these good works, this is... Showing the Lord we're thankful. Like many things in the Christian life, it's not enough just to say thank you, but now obey. Live out a life that displays that you are thankful. Number three, these good works increase our assurance. This sort of goes along with testifying to a true and lively faith. Now here's what I think might could possibly be another potential problem in our, in our theology. we we talked about how we, we're like this in our theological leanings. We, we just bounce from extreme to extreme. And what we, what we can do is, in trying to clarify justification by faith alone, we can swing to the other extreme where we're afraid to give any weight to works at all. In ourselves or in anybody else, we we become terrified to look at the fruit of somebody's life. We don't want to say anything about how somebody's living, how somebody's acting, how somebody's speaking. I don't want to say anything because, well, we're justified by faith. And that that is another extreme. We have to be careful about that. When we examine our, our faith like I said before, or we could examine our, our devotion to the Lord when we look in our hearts and we, we examine our love for the Lord. These things we're going to see are weak. They're not what, what we wish they were. We go to the other extreme and we say, well, well, let me see what I'm producing in my life. And then we scold ourselves. Don't you dare look at your works. Well, that's, that's, not, that's not correct. The Scriptures and our confession sets this out that these good works strengthen our assurance. While good works are not taken into account for justification, they are to be taken into account to verify the faith which takes Christ and issues forth in justification, therefore reassuring us that we have truly been saved. Turn to 1 John chapter 2. Verses 3 through 5. And by this, we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps His word, in Him truly The love of God is perfected. Now notice these conditions. If we keep His commandments, if we keep His Word, if these things are true of you, if these are the underlying reality of your worldview, again, from the heart, in honesty before God, I I desire to keep the commandments of God, I desire to keep His Word, then you've come to know Him and the love of god has been perfected or accomplished in you and that's not your doing you can't do that so we examine ourselves am i keeping his commandments am i keeping his word if that is so you didn't do that on your own god's doing that another text second peter just a few pages over second peter chapter 1 the, the confession references yeah, five to eleven. So I'll read all of those verse, verses, five to eleven. For this very reason, make every effort. No, notice the language of of work, of labor. Get to put something into it. Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with. Self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. These are works. Things you have to do. He says, "...for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities... Is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will rich, be richly provided for you an inheritance in the eternal kingdom, into the eternal kingdom of your Lord and Savior. Jesus Christ. Notice the language. If these qualities are yours and if they are increasing. This is if these good works are in your life, if they're growing in your life. And then he later on he uses this language of confirming your calling and election. So here's how you make your calling and election sure. Are these qualities in my life? Are they increasing? As I do that, I can confirm my own calling. In my election. Now, when you think through this, and you, you sort of lay this beside the, the quest, as some might consider it, the quest for assurance. There are some people who have never in their entire lives struggled with assurance of salvation. Those people probably don't really understand salvation or their own hearts. But when you come to, to begin to really examine your own heart, and are striving after what, we, what the Scriptures teach God longs for us to have, which is an assurance of our salvation. When we read texts like this, we see the goodness and the mercy of God. Mercy in that He doesn't take into account our works in justification. Christ, Christ's works. Christ's merit. When you're standing before God, He says, it's not based on what you've done. It's based on what Christ has done. But then in His goodness, He doesn't leave us to blindly hope or assume or live off some subjective feelings which always change or fluctuating all over the place. Do I I feel saved or not? That's not what He says. He says, I'm not going to take your works into account in justification and in your sanctification, I'm going to tell you exactly what I'm going to produce and then I'm going to say, look and see if it's there. And if it's there... I did it. I'm producing it in you. It's not wrong to say, to look at the scriptures and to say, I'm doing these things. These qualities are present in my life. I'm growing. Praise God, I'm saved. That's, that's not wrong. That's what He wants us to do. He wants us to confirm our calling and election. He wants us to know His love for us. He wants us to know that He's working in us. So We don't have to rely on our works to keep us in good standing with God, but we are able to look at our good works to be reminded of the standing that is ours. God says, in effect, look at what I'm doing in you. You can't do that on your own. I'm doing that. I haven't left you. I'm not going to leave you. Don't base it on subjective feelings. You might wake up tomorrow not feeling real saved. But there's something that's going to draw you to to be in the Word and to prayer that doesn't make any sense. There's something there. God says, I'm working. You might not feel it, but I'm there. And he, He wants that. So we, we can bring our works into the equation and, and this is not arrogance, it's not pride, it's not self-exalting, it's, it's doing exactly what Peter says to do here. Look at yourself. Are these things there? Then you're growing. So that increases our assurance. Good works also work to the edification of the saints. or it says these works edify their brethren. The good works that we do edify or build up other believers. As a matter of fact, many of the good works that we find in the Word of God are explicitly commanded to direct us how to build up the brethren, to how to to edify the saints. Romans 12, I'll give some examples. Romans 12, 10 to 13. Love one another with brotherly affection. That's a good work. Do that. Outdo one another in showing honor. That's a good work. Do that. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. That's a good work. Do that. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. These are all good works. They're all commanded in God's Word. And these things will will edify the saints. That's why they're given here. When it comes to the exercise of spiritual gifts... 1 Corinthians 14, 12, Paul says, So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. We think whatever your, your giftings are, mercy, hospitality, encouragement, whether they might be word gifts or deed gifts, whatever they are, when you are exercising them, we could add to that praying for the saints. When you're exercising this thing, these things, you're doing that, and that will work to build up the church, to edify the brethren. Your good works do that. Number five, these good works beautify our profession. It says they adorn the profession of the gospel. Few things are more degrading to the Christian faith than people who take the name of Christ on their lips and then live in ways contrary to that profession. It it practically ruins the testimony of Christ in the world. As we've probably all experienced, it makes it terribly difficult to try to change someone's opinion after the fact when the testimony of Christ has been ruined in their presence. The opposite of that being a clear profession of the true Christ is adorned, that is, decorated, well-dressed, beautified, when it is accompanied by the works, commanded by that same Christ in His Word. In other words, you profess Christ, and then you do the things that same Christ told you to do. And that adorns or beautifies your profession. It makes it look good to people. Matthew 5.16 is referenced here. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now notice what's happening here. People are going to see your good works. And rather than gnashing their teeth at you and your God, they're going to give glory to God. We, we ought to strive to live like this in our works. That way when, we say, when people say, why do you live this way? We can say, I'm a Christian. I believe this is how Christ, my Savior, would have me live. And they can't then begin to argue and say, aha, well I know the other day you did this. And that's completely contrary to what the Bible teaches. You don't want to do that. You don't want to have that that off kilter. Good works beautify our profession. Number six, these good works silence evil men. This is sort of the opposite of the last point. It says it stops. these good works stop the mouths of the adversaries. Now, we might not be able to fully extinguish the animosity that unbelievers have towards us as believers. But at least through our good works, we can leave them with nothing to charge against us except we preached Christ and we walked in the same manner in which He walked. If there must be a charge against us, we want that to be it. Hopefully the only fault with us would, that, would be that we, we live holy lives and we hold fast to the truth. And if people want to use that against us, then, then they can. 1 Timothy 6.1 is referenced here. 1 Timothy 6.1 Let all who un, are under a yoke as bondservants "...regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled." So these, he's talking to bond servants or slaves. And he's saying, if, if that's your state in life, you need to live in such a way that your master can't charge you with anything, any wrong. So that, here's the goal, that the Word of God, the teaching, would not be reviled. The name of God and the teaching... So you've got these Christian slaves, apparently in this church. He's saying, live in such a way that as your master sees you, he's hearing your profession, he's probably hearing your songs as you, as you work, as you're around the house. Live in such a way that they can't bring any charge against you that whenever he hears your profession, it's not um, destroyed by the way that you're acting. Now we typically take these texts about slaves and masters and lay them over against our Attitudes and our actions in the workplace where we have to work under somebody else. So the idea would be regard your boss as worthy of all honor and work in such a way that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Again, whatever they might have to say against you, they would at least have to say they work hard and they believe what they say they believe and they live out what they say they believe that will not uh, re- that, that way the, the teaching in the name of god cannot be reviled. The next text is 1 Peter 2:15. 1 Peter 2:15 For this is the will of god that by doing good that's your good works by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Now, I would imagine that we've all been in these situations where somebody wants to find fault in in Christianity or the Scriptures. And so they'll bring out some off-the-wall accusation that they think is going to pin you to the wall. Like, well, if you believe that, well, then I guess you won't be doing this. What a blessing it is to say, yeah, you're right, I don't do that. Most of the time, all people know is a a Christianity that is pure hypocrisy, saying and not doing. When they run into somebody who's saying and doing, their mouths are stopped. They can't argue. What about where it says this? I bet you all don't do that. Actually, we do. Or what about this? Yeah, we don't do that. We believe that's wrong. Your conscience is void of offense and it stops the mouths of ignorant and foolish people. They might think we're crazy, but they can't call us hypocrites, and that's a blessing. So our good works silences or silence evil men. And then number seven, ultimately our good works bring glory to God. It says and glorify God. Philippians one is the text here. Philippians one nine through eleven. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now several phrases here would fall under the category of good works. Abounding with love, or abounding in love with knowledge and discernment, being pure or purity, being blameless, filled with the fruit of righteousness. He says the goal is to the glory and praise of God. Now, why would our good works result in praise and glory to God? It's because it is God, by his Spirit working in us, that produces these good works. He's the author of our good works. The only reasonable explanation for Matthew five sixteen, they'll see your good works and glorify God. Well, why would they not glorify you? Well, because God, the Spirit, is the author of the good works in you. They come from Him. He's the one producing it. He goes on. The confession goes on to elaborate this, this point, describing this this God and how all this comes together. Whose this is this is God. Whose workmanship they are the saints created in Christ Jesus thereunto, or unto these good works. So the saints are God's workmanship. We have been created in Christ Jesus, a reference to the new creation. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. Again, the glory belongs to God because He has created us anew in union with His Son by His Spirit who works in us to produce these good works. And this is a quotation from Ephesians 2.10. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Again, like some of the men we were talking yesterday about the doctrines like election and, and predestination, which really seem to, to, to rile people up. If we are going to champion doctrines like foreknowledge and election and predestination, we cannot do that without also taking these texts into account, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. You can't have a predestination unto salvation apart from a predestination unto the good works that God prepared. If we, if we want to have the salvation, but we also want to live in licentiousness, we, we overthrow the whole doctrine both ways. The works themselves are prepared for us by God. The path is laid out by God's decree. And so then all of the glory goes to God. the next phrase says that having their fruit unto holiness, they may have the end, eternal life. And this is a quote from Romans 6.22. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit that you get leads to sanctification or holiness and its end, eternal life. Now what this text is not saying, this text is not saying that the reward for your good works is eternal life, that you've earned that. What it is saying is the logical end of one who is being made increasingly more holy by the Spirit is eternal life. And I would compare this to what John said to the woman at the well, and, or what Jesus said in John chapter 4 to the woman at the well. It says... Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. Notice what he says the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Eternal life for the believer is not the reward for our merit, it's the manifestation of the source of grace. Within us. The the Spirit has been given. And that's probably what he's talking about. Very often water is the picture of the Spirit. The Spirit is given. The Spirit produces good works. The Spirit gives life, gives the increase, gives the growth. The only end that can come from that is eternal life because the Spirit's not going to taper off. He's not going to get tired of what He's doing. It's going to increase higher and higher and higher and higher. The only logical outcome is Life eternal, flowing out, always increasing. That's what happens. So, good works. Prove the vitality of our faith. Display our gratitude to God. Help increase our assurance. Edify the saints and build up a church. Add beauty to our public profession. Silence evil men. And bring glory to God. Now, if that's the case, then should we not say, what shall I render to the Lord for all His benefits? Should that not be our prayer? Should we not start our days with that question? And throughout the day, ask that question as we we are living and we're brought to recognize a benefit, a blessing, a gift from God. As soon as we see that, worship and adore and then ask, what shall I render to the Lord for His benefits? What can I do right now to show Him that I'm grateful? What can I do right now to build up the church? What can I do right now to adorn my profession? What can I do right now to silence evil men? What could I do right now to bring glory to God? We shouldn't be afraid of good works. I think a lot of people in, in, in our Reformed camp are really afraid... To talk about the necessity of good works, the requirement of good works, and and especially the benefits of of good works. We should strive after this. Let's pray, and then we'll, we'll sing one more.